0: This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi,
1: Jay, this week, it is our last episode of the 2016 season. Season 6, Jay, and we are wrapping it up with one of our In the 90s episodes. You excited?
0: I love these, yeah. These are
1: yeah. fun. Previously, we've done these on our first one, Van Halen. It was around this time last year that we we broke out the concept of revisiting a, an artist who had a Huge career in the 80s, and then taking a look at how they evolved in the 90s, how the shifting musical landscape, the rise of grunge and alternative music and indie bands landing on the charts changed the musical landscape for Van Halen. It was pretty dramatic. We also talked about Metallica earlier this year. Mm -hmm. And so we had a lot of artists to choose from, but the one that I wanted to get to is Tom Petty because I think in terms of artists who have remained vital without succumbing to a shift in their sound based on the times, um, there's hardly anybody else that compares to Tom Petty, and I'm I'm really interested to dive into his career and and talk about what he put out in the '90s. In the previous two cases, we were talking about you know whether the '90s kind of sunk those bands and or or altered them in ways that they could not recover from and mm-hmm. i think in terms of petty the the question is did he equal or even possibly exceed what he did in the previous decade because of the success that he had so mm. i'm curious to get into this and to do so we brought along a guest an author And a songwriter who has a number of books to his credit, uh, Songwriters on Songwriting, and then the more recently released More Songwriters on Songwriting, and also the book Conversations with Tom Petty, Paul Zolo. Paul, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thank you very much. Happy to be here.
1: So can you give us a little bit of info? you got your new book, More Songwriters on Songwriting. Can you talk a little bit about some of the songwriters that you talked to for that book?
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, it's a sequel to my first book, which actually came out 25 years ago, called Songwriters on Songwriting, as you mentioned. And in that book, I had a lot of great people that I know you guys love, including uh, Tom Petty and Bob Dylan. And uh, so I've been working on the sequel for quite a while. And in the new one, we got uh, Elvis Elvis Costello and uh, Lieber and Stoller, Patti Smith, James Taylor, Stephen Stills, Chrissy Hind, so, uh Loretta Lynn, Herbie Hancock. Like the first one, a real great range
1: of people. Wow. That is a murderer's row of names (laughs) you just (laughs) mentioned. Wow. That's awesome. And people can go to americansongwriter.com. That's the website where they can check out not just the books as far as um, purchasing them in the store, but then also you have articles up on there, various conversations and and stories about various songwriters as well. Um, Yeah, that's right. American
2: Songwriter. American it's magazine, that, natural print magazine that comes out in Nashville, Ben. We have a, a website as well.
1: Okay, so let's get into Petty. Before we were talking, prior to kicking this off, the natural starting point is, since we're talking about the 90s, is Into the Great Wide Open. But I think we have to back up just a little bit because Into the Great Wide Open is almost part two of a collaboration yeah. between Petty and Jeff Lynn, which everybody knows from ELO. Um, also Mm -hmm. obviously had a hand in putting together the Traveling Wilburys with um, that insanely talented group of people, Roy Orbison and Bob Dylan and uh, George Harrison. So in terms of, I'm glad we have you on because we often talk about songwriting and Jay and I are both musicians, but I don't consider us uh, songwriters in the same way that people who are craftsmen as far as, as songs go. I wanted to get your opinion on what exactly did jeff lynn bring to petty that you know he had worked with jimmy iovine in the early 80s he'd worked with dave stewart Mm -hmm. what is it in your opinion that jeff lynn brought that in terms of success i mean those two albums back to back full moon fever and it's the great wide open are two hugely successful albums what was jeff lynn's hand in that
2: well, I know Tom loved working with Jeff Lynne, because Jeff, is, as you know from ELO and his great songwriting and arranging and performance, is a real musician, whereas Jimmy Ovine is not. Right. And in the book, he talked how often with Jimmy, he had to get him off the phone to the extent that he would just cut the phone line. Back in the day when phones were connected with chords, uh-huh. often Tom would the line, because Jimmy was always on the phone. That's the kind of uh, performer he was. Whereas Jeff Lynne really brought Tom to a, a different place musically and really helped him. Realize songs in a different way and gave him a whole different idea about recording. Where Tom really had this notion that recording is really hard and it's really hard to ever get what you want and you might make a demo at home, but you will never achieve that kind of simplicity or magic in the studio. When he started working with Jeff Lynn he realized you can start with real humble things like little home recordings and build on that. And there was really no limit to what you uh, could do in terms of realizing the vision of the song. And so, so uh, Jeff Lynn would, would hear something starting simple, a song like Free Fallin', which is, you guys said you're songwriters, there's just four chords that repeat through the whole song. Right. But, uh, you know, Tom wrote a melody, and then it was Jeff Lynn who actually said when he got to the chorus, hey, maybe you should go up an octave on that chorus. Don't just sing it all in that same range. Go, up, go up an octave, and Tom Petty, being a great singer, could do that. And that kind of created, you know, that giant octave leap is so dramatic, kind of created the magic of that song. That came directly from Jeff Lynn. So he was not only producing, he was right there with the, the, the birth of the songs. And, uh, you know, before they even started to arrange it, you know, building the solid architecture of the song so it would be a, a strong record. I mean, Tom definitely got that from Dave Stewart. Dave's a, a musician, and I just worked with Dave on his, on his memoirs that he did, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This. And Dave was similar. You know, he started with something very simple. It was a four-track cassette and, you know, turned it into Don't Come Around Here No More. Uh, So working with Jeff Lynn was more like that, working with a fellow musician.
1: It felt like in revisiting the catalog that Don't Come Around Here No More is like the kind of the catalyst for Petty sort of relaxing a little bit. You know, a lot of the early albums are songs built around a a driving rhythm and and they're very um, energetic. And it seemed like with that song, it it pushed him towards bringing his voice down a little bit in terms of the way he was Mm -hmm. delivering it and also kind of allowing him to be more expressive with like not the i don't know if the vocals his his lyrics sort of became a little bit more adventurous i guess
2: yeah yeah, more playful almost yeah yeah i agree i think that that started with dave Stewart, like you said because dave's whole philosophy of the thing is let's just have fun making a record and if it's no good no one ever has to hear it. It's not a tortured thing where you've got two weeks to do a whole album. It's more a joyful thing. Let's have, let's have fun making and writing and recording a song and it changed I think uh, Tom's ideas about what recording could be. That it could be a more joyful thing and he definitely uh, achieved that with Jeff Lynn. and that added to the joy in the music. So when you hear those songs uh, in Full Moon Fever, a lot of those have a real joyful sound to them. But the other dynamic of it, of course, is that Tom had a, an amazing band. I mean, he still does, the Heartbreakers, all these right. remarkable musicians, and they were a unit. So when Dave Stewart came and started making this without them, they didn't like that, you know, and uh, righteously. They understood that they might, might be supplanted, and Tom, like so many other great songwriters, might leave his band forever. So they were resistant to that, and Dave very wisely figured, look, let's get them in on the track. So it started with the drum machine, as I know you know, and by the end, he had the Heartbreakers on the track, and it goes into double time. But that was also the start of Tom being able to tell the band, look, I'm an artist, I'm, I'm going to stay with you guys, and I'm devoted to the Heartbreakers, but I have to I have to follow the muse and, and write songs in different ways. So I, I think that was also his first... Uh, his first step away from the band and understanding he could do this without, you know, his his hometown gang.
0: That really sets up the the decade for, for him in terms of, you know, he's ending the 80s really asserting himself as a as a solo musician and yeah. but then still having that connection to the band and the, sort of the rest of the uh, the decade becomes kind of a back and forth, right, between it, it, it's sort of his solo work, but then bringing the band in and it becoming band material, and the sort of the different producers, and sort of back and forth between being a band and being a solo artist. And but definitely, he leaves the '80s, you know, pretty much established that he can do this himself if he if he so if he so pleased.
2: Yeah. yeah, I totally agree. And he would bring his great songs to the solo work or to the band work. There was a, never a sense that one of them was uh, superior to the other. Mm-hmm. Nor was there ever sense that he was going to leave the Heartbreakers forever. Though I know they they certainly worried about that. I mean, he left Stan Lynch forever, of course, but right? He's, he with the rest of the Heartbreakers.
1: And I think, in terms of reading the books on Petty, that's probably one of the more interesting aspects of this. Is that while he's having all this, you know, crazy success, Mike Campbell and and Stan Lynch are writing songs for Don Henley and they're producing other people they're they're all having success on their own and and ben is having success playing on people's records so it wasn't like the heartbreakers weren't were not were just standing around waiting for full moon fever to sort of run its course and then they could do a heartbreakers record again like they were all busy yeah. and six and i think it was uh the year that um one year with the Grammys, where it was the Trevor and Wilburys had the album Full Moon, "Full Moon Fever" was up for Best Album. Dan Henley's yeah. "Building the Perfect Beast" was up, which Campbell and, and Lynch had been involved with, and then they all yeah. lost to Bonnie Raitt, <laughs> which they all sort of negated each other. Huh. And uh, yeah, I, I, that's when I, I guess I kind of found it strange then when in reading about "In the Great Wide Open," how there was it seemed like, especially in this on the Stan Lynch end of things. There was a lot of tension between the the heartbreakers and Jeff Lynn because he had just, you know, been successful with Petty on that solo record that. And I understand that, there, you know, in reading about Lynch and him constantly sort of being at odds with Petty and then Petty and then sort of getting into it with Mike Campbell as well, that. Even though they were having all that success, he seemed to be the one that was constantly just not on board with whoever was producing. And it, I guess that had to do with the fact from reading that while he was a great live drummer, it seemed like he struggled in the studio to sort of produce what either Petty or the producer were, were trying to get to. Is that, is, am I on, on course with that?
2: Yeah, Absolutely. Okay. And as we know from rock history it's pretty common that people who are in a rock band for a long time will really get on each other's nerves to the extent that they just can't work together even the Beatles who were all all you need is love and give peace a chance they couldn't stand each other you know and so that's more common so it's, it's really more it's uncommon that Tom still gets along so beautifully with the you know Ben Montench and Mike Campbell and and they're beautiful people and have known each other for a long time but he and Sam Lynch just got on each other's nerves. And uh, between me and him, he, he rarely uh, had problems with fans playing. He thought he was a solid player and uh, a pro. And he knew his fans loved him, but he just couldn't get along. And he said he, he just didn't want to have to go, you know, every year having to fight. And I said, so did you fight about music? And he goes, no, we fought about everything. We fight about what we're having for lunch. It was always a fight. So... uh Tom's someone who wants harmony. He's a very peaceful guy. very, very soft spoken. He doesn't want discord in his life. So uh, I I think that was really, really hard for him to to, to do that, to replace Stan Lynch. And, he, and to this day, there's a lot of Heartbreakers fans who are still upset about it. But I think he had to do it to maintain the sanity, as opposed to so many people just walk away from their whole band. Right. He had to do that.
0: And the sense I got watching the. Uh peter Bogdanovich uh, documentary running down a dream was that uh stan lynch is a i mean he went on to be a producer and songwriter himself and it sort of gets to a point when you work together for for that long where you're almost i don't know uh it's kind of an insult for people like to have to compromise constantly you just mm-hmm. you just want to get out of that and express yourself and you can just tell that like he was just looking for reasons to to piss, to, to piss the rest of the band off and basically get himself fired. Um, that's the way they kind of portrayed it in the movie at least and sort of yeah. made sense. I think he went on and did his own thing and seems perfectly happy with it. And I think there's a quote in there that he, he uh, something along the lines of he, you know, he, he ran that thing as, as long as he could in terms of made the most out of it uh, mm-hmm. that he possibly could make out of it. And so it makes sense. I think he also didn't like the direction the band was headed in in terms of, you know, playing a lot more, um, you know, quieter stuff. You know, I think as the decade goes on, I mean, Tom Petty, I, I feel, becomes very much an Americana artist um, by the t- by the time that the 90s are wrapping up as opposed to, you know, a rock and roll uh, artist as he was in, more so in the 80s. So, which I think is great, except that, yeah, I mean, if you're a drummer who wants to play rock music, that's maybe not, you know, what you want to be doing, so... Yeah. I think I think it all ultimately worked out for the for the best for everybody.
2: The Heartbreakers are not a band like the Beatles where there's many writers or many leaders really and uh Is or they? other it's Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. It's him and they're they're really a backup band. I mean he wrote the songs or he co wrote a lot. Uh and so you know certainly Lynch's ego had to be uh you know, subjugated all the all, all way to Tom Petty. But at the same time, Petty could have been a solo artist. As he told me uh, in, in our book, when he first came to LA, they immediately offered him a solo deal. And let's get great musicians. We don't need those Florida guys. And he said, no, that's the kind of guy he was. He was, you know, devoted to these guys and insisted he have them. And he's also smart because they also happen to be great musicians. You know, each one of them, remarkable musicians. So he, it was for the best of the band. But, uh, he always was about, you know, including the band and and, uh, and making it democratic and, and creating a situation where everyone was pretty happy. And, uh, you know, clearly Benmont and, and Mike Campbell did w- really well. The story of Howie Epstein it was probably the, the saddest story of all in the book.
1: Yeah, and, it, and I want to get into that a little bit because I, I think the thing that I found shocking in reading the two books in comparison and then Jay watching the documentary is that, and I, I don't know if anything was left out or, or what have you, but in reading the book and him talking about, Petty in your book, talking about Howie and the struggles he had with drugs and how he was sort of disintegrating before their eyes, especially in the 90s where he was showing up two hours late to practices and barely making it to gigs and getting arrested and all this stuff was happening. And I, I mean, there was there's a line where you were You were asking him about, you know, or maybe he even brought it up. He said, you know, everybody kind of had their own thing, but they worked it out. And he doesn't really get into specifics. But then, like, years later, it came out that he had actually struggled pretty badly with um, addiction after him, after his divorce. And he moved out to the chicken shack. And he had, I think it was, I'm guessing this was after the She's the One and while they were, I'm guessing, in the time between She's the One in 96 and then when they started recording Echo in 99, because it seemed to affect his relationship with Rick Rubin as well. And I'm curious if if his issues came up at all um, when you were talking with him.
2: They did. And it's interesting you said if there's anything left out. Because there were a couple times while writing the book that uh, we would do... When, when Tom and I wrote it, we'd meet almost every Saturday at, at his one of his two homes in Malibu and talk for a couple hours, and a a couple times he'd call me at night and go, you know, let's redo that one. And one of those was when we talked about Howie. We spent maybe three hours just talking about Howie, and it was very dark, and Tom got the saddest I've ever seen him get. It was a really hard time for him to to talk about it. And he called me that night, and he said, you know, that was too dark. I don't want the world to think Howie was only about heroin and drugs, and it was only about anger. He was really great. So he said, would you mind, Paul, if we just did that whole one over? And I said, of course, Tom, I don't mind, whatever you want to do. So that was one of those ones where he changed it. He felt it was too negative about Howie. And, and also about Carlene Carter. He was very upset with her that she sort of enabled it. So uh, he wanted to lessen that, too, uh, as well. When I, when I asked, you know, recently it came out and said, I'm not sure if this was true, that he had his own heroin problems. When, when I asked Tom about heroin, he said he tried it once. Right. And that was it. And I said, because you didn't like it? And he goes, no, I liked it too much, and I know this was dangerous. But he told me that was it. I mean, he, he openly talked about his cocaine problems and how he smashed his hand on cocaine. But he never told me that he was uh, involved in heroin himself after that one time. Hmm.
1: Yeah, that, that came out th- just this year in the other book that he talked about. And he had to go to rehab, and and he went to, a, I guess, a psychiatrist. I always get psychologist and psychiatrist confused and talked about how deep his depression was dating back. You know, obviously he had a very troubled childhood with issues with his father and whatnot. And, um, the, there was a line that I read. I don't know if it was in the book or if it was in an article where it basically the psychiatrist said, you know, people with your level of depression, that's so dark and so crippling, usually either kill themselves or kill somebody else. It's like, usually people don't make it this far in life being functional with your level of depression. And I was, like, floored by reading by that because, you know, not only had he made it, but, I mean, he had made it and been successful and somehow been able to manage that and then also deal with, you know, a very fractured personal life in terms of um, his divorce and then, obviously, the, the struggles within the band that he was dealing with. Uh, it was pretty shocking. I, I I can't even comprehend how you can write songs when you're dealing with that level of depression, other than to use the songs as a way to, to get out of the depression. Um, right.
2: Or pain to get you out of the depression. You go to, go to drugs, you know, to escape it. Right. Which is pretty cool. You, know. you know, there was one time uh, in the 90s before we did this book that I did meet up with, and we were doing something for United Airlines. And he seemed so dark and so not there. It was so unusual. It was like he was a different person that I've reflected on that. Because he just seemed really uh, gone, but in a real sad way. But when I did this book with him, he was with Kim. And her son was young then. And their dog moved in. And they had such a sweet romance and such a loving person. And he was so in love with her. He just seemed so happy the whole time. So it was a very happy time when when I was working with him.
0: Would this have been prior to Echo? No,
2: this was um, after
0: Echo. Yeah, it was yeah. after Echo. Well,
1: the, the the heroin
0: problem?
1: Oh, the heroin problem occurred post divorce, which is mid nineties, and then prior to Echo and like during Echo, because he was okay. he had worked with Rick Rubin on both the Wildflowers album and then a lot of the stuff for She's the One were Outtakes. I think he wrote Walls. Uh, as a new song for that Mm -hmm. but a a lot of those were outtakes and they worked on that together like really quickly and then you know he toured and stuff after that but echo (laughs) started and rick rubin was on board to start echo and then i i believe he didn't finish like he kind of was checking out because tom was going through a lot of issues with the the divorce and what have you and then the drugs obviously that have come to light
0: when i revisited echo i i i thought there were a couple lines and, and maybe even a couple songs where you could reinterpret it that maybe that's what he's talking about like there's a couple songs or uh, where it could be about like he's implying there's another woman but there's a there's like a sadness to it that you're like well maybe he's actually talking about the other woman is heroin. <laughs> you know, there's like a depth to it now that you know, you kinda know possibly what was going on and, and maybe the deeper meaning or alternate meaning to some of the lyrics on that record. I hadn't
1: read it that way, but that's possible.
0: I think there's one line where he says something like the poison is a liquid and and he starts talking about this dark relationship and anyway, yeah. it's worth revisiting with that context now.
2: Oh it was yeah. a hard I I know doing echo was a hard time. I mean Holly as he said was dismantling during that and the, the photo session for that cover Howie didn't even show up.
1: That's right. I believe it's
2: Scott, Scott Thurston, if I if I remember correctly, has his back to the camera as if he's Howie, but Howie wasn't even in the photo. And Tom said that's so symbolic of what was going on that Howie wasn't even in the picture anymore. But we wanted him to be there. And they gave Howie many chances. They kept saying, you know, we don't want to kick you out of the you know, out of the band, but you gotta straighten up. You just kept messing up. But he loves Howie. He said he loves Howie not only because he was a great bass player, but because he was a great harmony singer. And he said, You know, in the, in the Heartbreakers, you got to sing your harmony part right every time. That's part of being yeah. in the band. And Howie was a great singer. He, he stole him from Del Shannon.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that possibly gets overlooked with Petty. I mean, obviously, people, you know, he's a great songwriter. He writes these great singles. There are a number of albums that are. You know, from "Damned" to "Torpedoes" to "Full Moon Fever," that are just rock solid all the way through. But I think the heartbreakers often get lost. And and you're mentioning with Howie singing the the backing vocals, Mike Campbell does. I'm guessing does he do some backing vocals, or is that all? I sing. Okay.
2: Not as much as the other guys, but they all they all sing to some extent.
1: Yeah. That to me Stand- was one of the things that Stand- Howie, stood out. I was going to say in terms of the 90s like there weren't mm-hmm. any bands hardly any bands that were doing anything with harmonies whether they were a rock band or an alternative band I mean that was such a u- unique you know 70s sort of approach to singing that just got yeah. completely lost in that decade
2: That's right and it's always been such an important element of his music cuz of course he came up just loving Beatles and The Birds you know and great rock and roll and folky chords, but with Great vocal harmonies, and really solid harmonies. I mean, not Keith richards type harmony, which are great, too, but, I mean, really strongly, beautifully, you know, tuneful harmonies always. It, it's always been a, an important part of his music, and, you know, when you see them live, too, they're there. You know, there's never a sense of, man, that sounded better on the record. Uh, the Heartbreak's live, always had the vocals so bright and perfect. Uh, it's a big part of the sound
0: and uh stan stan sang a lot too so it's you know they've had members leave and 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 move and pass on that uh provided significant uh significantly to that sound but still maintained by i think by adding scott in the band now kind of filling those gaps in which is pretty remarkable but yeah i think that's a, a part of the band that's greatly overlooked and i I was really surprised, like, revisiting this whole um, – the whole decade, this four, the set of four records. There's a lot of really cool, uh, like you guys said, harmonies. But they're even – the way they're mixed, you know, I think the way that Rick Rubin appre- approaches harmonies, mm-hmm. um, the way he mixes them in the record is, is really um, – they're very separated. You know, they'll be pushed hard left and right, so you can really make the voices out. It really makes it uh, – uh, really stand out i think in some of the jeff lynn production they can get sort of the character of the individuals can get a little lost in the production but with the uh the rick rubin stuff you can really hear those those individual voices it's really really pretty beautiful
2: yeah that's right tom even told me he started with rick rubin using almost no reverb or echo at all on the voices so the voice mm-hmm. really they're not in a wash of reverb and that really brings out the actual voices. And when you have voices that are that good and singing in perfect harmony, it sounds great. You don't have to add a bunch of stuff to it.
0: Absolutely.
1: Now, it's interesting that Tom had made, let's see, one, two, three, four, four what, like seven albums with the Heartbreakers between 76 and 87. They made his first solo record in 89, goes back to the Heartbreakers in 91, and then immediately goes back and makes another solo record. Um, almost as if he was like, I-, I need to go back off and do this again on my own sort of thing after uh, apparently what were some difficult times. Although to, even though there there might have been some tension between the band and, and Jeff Lynne, Petty still uses those guys on his solo records. He just expands the palette to bring in some, yeah. some other folks. Uh, which is well, unusual for a solo artist. You know, when you think of so people going solo from their main bands, a lot of times they completely, you know, like Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, they they go, go get completely different players for their yeah. for their Absolutely. albums.
2: Absolutely, like Sting doesn't bring in Andy Summers for his solo album, <laughs>
1: <But> <laughs> right?
2: A tom definitely. I mean, I think everyone knows there's not a better keyboard player in, in the in the industry than Ben Montan. It doesn't get better. And same thing with Mike Campbell. You can't really get a better guitarist. I mean, there's some maybe at that level, but they're really two of the greatest musicians there are, so uh, it makes sense. I mean, Tom has always been so in awe of Ben Montenegro's musicianship. He told me when they went on tour with Dylan, that Dylan, just to mess with him, would throw out a very obscure song by the Ink Spots. And Tom said, we'd all be just stunned. We wouldn't know it. Except Ben Mont. Ben Mont could play anything.
0: That's not so, so that makes
2: sense, Tom <laughs> would use him even in the solo stuff. I mean, Benmont is just a phenomenal musician who can play anything since he was a kid.
0: And uh, you, you mentioned, Tim, that the, you know he moved back into Wildflowers as a solo record. It, my impression of Into the Great White Open is that the band did not enjoy making that record. I mean, Benmont in particular did not like the approach that Jeff Flynn took to how to make records in terms of, you know, he just, w- with the talent he had, he just wants to play. And find his spot and make it just flow and Jeff Lynne records are not made that way it's all over tracked and, and multi-track so you, you have your spot and you know there's a there's an idea of what you should play in that spot and for somebody like him that's kind of under utilizing his talent in a way <laughs> yeah. so i very much got that paul maybe you can add some more color to this but i very much got the impression that they did not like making that record at all
2: you know, I, I, I'm not sure of that. I only interviewed Tom about it, so I didn't really get into that. But, I mean, to this day, Tom, I mean, recently when, when Jeff Linn got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Tom came and spoke and he said he considers Jeff Lynn the world's greatest producer. He doesn't consider him one of the best. He thinks he's the greatest. Wow. But Tom was just thrilled with those albums. And I know there were some songs on those that people never got to know, but he was really proud of some of those songs, like Two Gunslingers, which is a great song. I Know he was thrilled with that album, so I, I, I'm not as familiar with how the band felt about working with, with Jeff.
1: Now it seemed like from the extraneous interviews and whatnot, I think even like I think Stan Lynch was like giving separate interviews to Rolling Stone at the time, sort of like, I don't know what's going on with this band, and blah blah blah, and like, really, like it, <laughs> just bizarre behavior at that point. I think the thing that um, I I don't think Mike Campbell struggled as much. And in fact, in th- I th- his playing on a lot of Into the Great Wide Open, I think is some of his best. I mean, it's so like that slide part on the song Into the Great Wide Open is like so iconic. And um, I think you mentioned in the book uh, or yeah, it, that you bring, bring up uh, George Harrison's sort of slide playing as a comparison. And mm-hmm. um, that's the thing like, I don't think a lot of people make the strong enough connection to the Beatles. I know that obviously Tom Petty talks about that like lightning bolt moment when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan and it launched, you know, a million different guys to pick up guitars and want to be songwriters. But when you listen to yeah. Petty, you don't necessarily go, oh, well, that's a band that's absolutely a hundred percent Beatles influenced because it's a much more Americanized version. And then, you hear that just like that little nugget of that slide part and you go oh that's where the that's where the Beatles influences it's very subtle but uh, Campbell's playing is like just all over the place cool on that record He just he's so tasteful in his playing that he you know if it only calls for two notes he's gonna play the like the absolute perfect two notes that are needed for a part and if it's you know, just as simple as playing a 12-string guitar, multi-tracked a dozen times or whatever, he's gonna, you know, make that work as well. I think in, in going back, that's I I probably you know I know that Tom Petty's a fantastic songwriter, but it's made me appreciate going back now and being a little bit more in tune with production and and what everybody else is doing. I can hear all the stuff that Mike Campbell does and just kind of be in awe of like him finding the exact right guitar tone and the exact right playing at at all the right spots, if you picked up on that at all or either.
2: I mean, Tom had nothing but awe for for the talent of Mike Campbell. I mean, not only a phenomenal lead uh, slide guitarist, like you said, in the George Harrison really haunting slide guitar fills for the records, but also a really bluesy slide guitarist who could just jam. I mean, George Harrison, when he played those solos, he'd work them out. And do a man he takes to get him perfect. Mike isn't quite that way. He just plays him like that. And you know, when you see him live, he plays like that. Just a, a phenomenal guitarist, but can really play in any style. I mean, he could do uh, fast Chet Atkins kind of country stuff, and he could do, you know, folky stuff. He can do anything. I mean, he's a, a real guitar hero, but also a really, you know, wonderful composer. You know, a lot of those songs that they would write together, those, I mean, all the songs they would write together would just start with Mike, you know, coming up with music and giving Tom. It used to be cassette tapes, but Tom and Mike would take maybe one out of twelve. And Mike Campbell was just overflowing with stuff, like you mentioned, "The Boys of Summer," which uh, Henley did. You know, Tom passed on it. He first gave it to Tom, and then Henley made pretty great song out of it. Right. But uh, but uh, Mike would just write wonderful stuff, and, and so much of it. You know, Tom said, "If I had you know many more years, I could maybe write more songs with Mike, but I can only do so many." So it, it's it, uh you know a phenomenal guitarist but I mean George Harrison wasn't providing and McCartney with music the way Mike Campbell's is giving him amazing music to, to write songs together.
0: I think what's always uh, impressed me about Mike Campbell is like for a guitar player he's always musical. Does that make sense? like there's nothing where uh, it really stands out from the song it's always there to serve the song and he'll, and I think the also the other thing he does is which a lot of uh, guitar players struggle with is he knows when not to play. Yeah, <laughs> or when to like to fall in the background, um, Absolutely. And, and that is so so important. I, I think everybody does in the band. Honestly, and that's what makes them so great. Is you know they yeah, can step forward and play with anybody, but uh, they also know when it's time to like pull back and let the song come through. And I, I think he does that. Yeah, as well as any guitar player.
2: I agree. I mean, he's a very tasteful guitarist. He doesn't overplay. He doesn't use too much. Uh distortion or something where it's painful to hear his guitar his guitar is always just so inviting and great to Mm -hmm. hear and yet pyrotechnic i mean he's just an amazing fluid player but uh yeah it just doesn't get much better than having a mike campbell he can really really do anything on guitar
0: so this is a band that i mean they broke in europe before they broke in america right did they continue in the 90s to to pay attention to uh to to the UK as much as they as they did in the 80s. I, I don't know that part of the story. Do you happen to to have well, any information
2: that At the beginning, they were very. It was it was like the Beatles, where they put out different releases for the UK and America, and they were very excited about their success in the UK, because mm-hmm. Tom, like so many people of his generation, it was all about the UK and the music that came out of there. But as time went on, it started to become one thing, and there were there were no more separate releases, but. Uh, You know his his fame was international. It went far beyond the UK. It was all over. It's all over the world. And also, you know, people don't realize that unlike a lot of rock stars, he even like Dylan or Neil Young, he has so many hits he's written. Those guys have each written a lot of hits, but Tom Petty's written really more hits than pretty much anyone else. When you go to his concerts, he could play almost three hours and still not do all the hits. Yeah, and that that's really unusual that he's created so many hits. He's still, I think, in the shadow of some other writers like like Dylan, but really as a hit maker, he's far beyond almost all of them. Yeah,
0: I, it, it's pretty astounding. I, I have his, the box set that came out, uh, I think, in the late 90s. It, it's just it's incredible. I mean, you, every song is, if it's not a hit, it's at least um, familiar, like it was played enough that you know it. And I found myself—I I actually kind of got disconnected from his, uh, from these '90s releases. Uh, and when I went back and listened, prepping for the show, I, I was astounded by how many of these songs that I knew so well. Like, I, I guess I just started to think of them as just part of his catalog, and almost lost. Well, did I lost what, what era and what records they were from? I just knew them, which was yeah, kind of interesting.
2: There are different periods, but there there's not really a weak period. He didn't put out several albums in a row where it didn't seem like uh, he was inspired, even though he went through dark parts of his life. So uh, I I totally agree with you. It's strong material all the way through, and unlike a lot of people, I mean, it's much more common, as as I'm sure you guys know well, to peak in your 20s in rock and roll. Most rock and roll people they they do their great work in their 20s.
0: Mm -hmm. Leonard
2: Cohen said it's a lot like being a matador. You know, it takes a lot of energy and. Past your twenties, a lot of people don't have it, but Tom Petty, you know, with Full Moon Fever and then the beginning of the '90s, really reinvented himself and connected with, as we're saying, a new kind of playful like approach to songwriting that that just reinvigorated his songwriting. So he seems to have had almost a uh, more than one career when you when you go back over all the decades that he that he's put out records.
1: I think part of that is also it cannot be overlooked because we're talking about the '80s and '90s is that he was willing to have a, a visual approach that was not just him playing the songs in a concert or, you know, him lip syncing to the song. Like there are our iconic videos that are based around his songs. I mean, into the great wide open starring a young Johnny Depp and you'll come around here. No more is an iconic video. And there are just, he won the the best Award for a male video in 95 for You Don't Know How It Feels. I mean, that was, I think, the key to him in a turbulent decade for artists coming out of the 80s. He was able to maintain, I think, some credibility and find a new audience because he had this connection through through MTV and through videos where a kid who's watching and sees a Pearl Jam video and then sees you know, a spin doctor's video, they see a Tom Petty video and it's not that big of a shock in terms of the production value. And in terms of the, um, even in terms of the sound sonically, when you get to, we're going to get to wildflowers, but you know, a song like you don't know how it feels coming out in 94. That's just after the sort of the crest of grunge with, uh, Nirvana and Pearl jam and Soundgarden garden and Allison chains and those bands that like, 91, 92, 94, you start to see things like open up a little bit and you get some, some other artists that don't, you know, have drop D tuning and aren't, you know, singing about angry and, and disaffected by things. And it, it seemed like it hit like just at the right time for that record to come out. And I went back to that record and like Jay just completely shocked at how many songs I knew for not buying the record at the time when it came out. I was, you know, knee-deep in alternative music at the time and I didn't have the money as a college student to buy everything that I wanted, so I I didn't buy Wildflowers when it came out. Yet, when I went back and listened to it now, I'm shocked at like that I know more than half the record way better, especially for a 15-song record um, than I was expecting. You know, through reading in the book and, and interviews and stuff, it seemed like his collaboration with Rick Rubin was extremely fruitful in that they were originally planning on doing, they wanted to do like a double record, a two CD mm-hmm. record, which was not unheard of at the time. I mean, there were a couple of bands that got away with it, even at 15 songs. This, I, I think, I feel like that's a little bit, you know, maybe overboard in terms of the CD era. Definitely um, drove some artists to, indulge a little bit more I'm still a fan of 10 songs for an album or maybe 12 songs max um, right. and then just either putting them out as b-sides or, or save them for a later a compilation or something like that since we're talking about Wildflowers and Rick Rubin what is it that Rick Rubin brought to the the songwriting of Tom Petty Jay mentioned about the separation in the, in the production side but in terms of the songwriting side what was it that Rick Rubin had to offer
2: Rick was really working with Tom as a songwriter without the band. It was just the two of them getting together, and Tom was in he was writing a lot for Wildflowers. As you said, it was almost a double album. He was really connecting with the muse and, and writing a lot, and Rick was very involved. And the thing that Tom loved is connected to what I said earlier about the old tech, uh, the old method when you'd make a demo, you would make a you know a demonstration of the song, and then you'd go and make the official record of it, and have a hard time capturing that magic that you had. You know, when you were doing it just for fun, Rick Rubin showed him like anything you record at home, we can use. So if you make a little demo, we don't have to start over. We can build on that. And that gave Tom a license to kind of relax and experiment. and uh, it it changed his whole idea about songwriting. I mean that came from from Jeff Lynn, too that the uh, the process could be fun. Rick Rubin was a lot less uh, you know uh, complex the way he approached songwriting, it was a more pure, rootsy approach, but it was still really based on the song. And, uh, you know, I wanted to mention earlier, too, we're talking about the music videos. I mean, that was just perfect timing for Tom to come along with music videos. And just like songwriting and record making, he embraced it as an artist. This is another aspect of this art that that I can express myself in and can bring people to the the music. So many of those songs that were music videos, not one of those failed. They all became hit singles. And it showed me that he could have taken, I think, any song on his album. If he would have made a a video and given it that kind of attention, it would have become a hit single. And there's so many that are... They they weren't singles just because they weren't released as singles. But a song like Insider that he did with Stevie Nicks or uh, Two Gunslingers, they're as great as as his greatest songs. So I think he came to to realize with with Rick Rubin, too, that he could just write any kind of song and... uh, whether or not he was thinking this this can be a hit single or not, just express himself in different ways. So I think Rick really gave him license to to experiment and to, to try with different songs. And occasionally there'd be songs Tom really liked that, that Rick didn't hear. And uh, so it showed me that, and he, Tom would be disappointed. It showed me Tom really respected Rick Rubin's point of view. He really appreciated the Rick Rubin, uh, Johnny Cash stuff that he did. Uh, so I think he really as opposed to Jimmy o- Yovine, really respected Rick Rubin and followed his his advice generally about songs and, and how to make records out of them.
0: And the uh, Heartbreakers end up being the band on the America 2 Johnny Cash record, right? What What is the sequencing of that? What's the, I'm trying to remember what the timeline was. Was that oh, done yeah, between?
2: C- not sure exactly, but I, I think you're right. I mean, I don't think they, they played on the whole album, but they played on most of it. Is that correct?
0: Uh, Yeah, I think it's... They play in a lot of it, yeah.
2: I remember Tom being really impressed with how Rick could take uh, Johnny Cash doing a song like Hurt and make it so stark that it didn't oh. require full band drums, you know, guitar solos, that it was about the song. And he started to learn how you could bring out a song in, in simpler ways. Like we were saying, no echo, no reverb on the vocal, making it more pure and organic sounding in a lot of ways. That's what he—that's what he was doing on Wildflowers, and I think it sounds like his, his most organic album. And the first time I interviewed Tom before we did the book together it was uh, it was for a magazine article, and it was right after Wildflowers. He was still living in uh, Encino with his first wife, but he was in a really happy place. He was really, really proud of all those songs. And as I said to him at the time, it seemed like he was just overflowing with inspiration for Wildflowers. And he said, "Yeah, it felt like that." uh which is why the title wildflowers was just so appropriate for it that these are just beautiful things that just come out of nowhere you don't even plant them they just keep growing and there's beauty everywhere so i think he was getting in touch with a new a new freedom and a new liberation in terms of his songwriting and part of that was stepping away from the band a little bit and that matrix and and feeling uh, freer to express himself in a more individual way
0: walk us into she's the one because that's a a little bit of a blind spot in terms of the story um that for me as a fan it felt like that kind of came out of nowhere that that record and then also uh just revisiting the history in the the movie i mentioned running running down a dream i don't think it's mentioned at all in fact i think they skip it completely um and go right to uh, uh the howie epstein story and then echo so how did that record come about do you do you know the, the background of it
2: Trying to remember exactly, I remember it came out of out of nowhere. And Tom, I believe, as we were saying, he was living in the Chicken Shack at the time, mm. and was not in a good place. And so he had bits and pieces of things. Uh, they had some really good stuff, like a supernatural radio is a song on that. And there's some songs he felt were throwaways, like that, which I think is a great song. But like a lot of songwriters, sometimes if you don't work on something and uh, Maybe it comes easy, or you don't think uh, you put much into it. They don't have much regard for it. So Tom didn't seem to have a lot of regard for the album. He liked the song Walls, and he was really proud of, you know, he got Lindsey Buckingham. They did two versions of Walls, and Lindsey Buckingham came in one day and just did, like, 80 different vocal tracks. I mean, it's remarkable when you listen to that and turn it up. All the Lindsey parts on it are just just amazing. I think it's one of Tom's coolest-sounding singles. I mean, it was not a hit single, but... uh, a really cool sounding uh, record. On it, but I think Tom and a lot of people felt that you know he. I don't even think he considered it one of his real albums. Might be why he uh, kind of regarded it that way in the in the movie.
1: Hmm. I think part of the history with that is Ed Burns was a fan of Tom Petty, and Tom Petty liked Ed Burns' first movie, The Brothers McMullen, and somehow mm-hmm. they got connected. And originally, I think the concept was that Tom wasn't going to make the whole album; he was going to call some of his friends and like get them to like either contribute songs or or write songs for the record and then he came, he was basically came to the realization like they're not going to give me good songs cuz they want to put their good songs on their albums so he's like I guess I got to do this myself and then went through some of the wildflower sessions the stuff that didn't get used wrote some, wrote a couple new songs and then I think the the problem with it was they had the album ready to go to come out with when the album or when the movie was supposed to come out and they had a release date locked in and then ed burns needed more time to finish the movie so there was like a six month delay between when the soundtrack came out and then six months later the movie actually came out so it was like weird because there was this album for she's the one which wasn't it didn't exist yet and it kind of threw everything off and that i think that's why it gets ignored a little bit and it's not it's in terms of the um catalog being like re-released i think this is one that has not been re-released in terms of like getting remastered and because they yeah. redid some of the back catalog getting it remastered and re-released and this one i think got ignored for that reason is that he's just not a <laughs> fan of it i guess it was just difficult
2: yeah i think it represents a tough time but there's some strong stuff the song california like you mentioned was left off of Wildflowers that's on there and then Angel Dream was uh, the first song he wrote for Dana his current wife when they first met and that's a lovely song and then he put uh, the Asshole on there by uh, Beck mm-hmm. and he told he told me that Ruben Rick Ruben really loved it and he thought there was it fit the character in the movie who was an asshole but he said I think Ed, Ed Burns was a little uncomfortable with it I don't know why but I think he was uncomfortable with it so, that's uh, funny he said he wrote "Walls." I think that was the the one real big song he wrote for the movie, and he wrote that at the Chicken Shack. But like you said, other others were bits and pieces that he, he put on that record.
0: Yeah, it's a it's. it's I found it to be. Uh, I don't know that it, it, it's strong all the way through, but there's certainly a lot of really good material on it. Um, I agree. I mean, "Walls" and it's in itself. Actually, both versions of it is are, are pretty stellar. So. And all yeah. the ones you called out as well, I thought were really strong too. So again, I, I just I think we, it sounds like the because of the way it was released and sort of the circumstances around it, it's a bit overlooked, but uh, definitely worth checking out.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think Supernatural Radio is like a classic Tom Petty song. I love yeah. it. And, and uh, Mike Campbell's guitar on that is, is wonderful.
1: So that comes out in, in 96. And then the, the collaboration between uh, Ruben... And the Heartbreakers basically became the like the backing band on, what was it? It was it American Recordings, or is it American Recordings 2? Yeah, that the that's one what I am saying. About? Okay, that yeah, also yeah, came out second. in 96. Okay. They were on an
2: album called Unchained.
1: Yeah, and that's Johnny. got the covers of, there's a Beck cover on that. Obviously, Rick Rubin was a huge Beck fan because he has Petty cover <laughs> back and then he has Johnny Cash cover back. Um, yeah, yeah, But then that's also got the Rusty Cage cover, the Soundgarden cover, and he covers uh, Sound, Sound and Accents, the uh, the Petty Song from the self-titled, not self-titled, the, um, the title track from that album, and the and that, Heartbreakers are basically Cap- the backing band.
2: Yeah, and Cash then covered uh, I Won't Back Down on American
1: 3. Tom's um, song, I Won't Back Down. Yeah. And it's, I'm trying to you mentioned uh, earlier hurt which release was that on was that on that album or was that I think it's on... on the first one yeah was
2: the it? first
0: one sir. america one Please. american record i can't they, there's two names for all the records so it gets really confusing
1: right. okay. <laughs> oh okay i see what you, yeah i that's i was like looking it up and i'm like why is this not coming yeah. up with the right title what, what, uh,
0: when you go back to now and try to... with I mean, Johnny Cash's catalog is enormous. When you go back through the, something like Apple Music yeah. or Spotify and try to find those records, it's complicated. Right.
2: <laughs> they had different names. At one point, they were going to call the album Petty Cash. Actually, Hurt wow. is
1: not on the album until uh, oh. the 2002, The Man Comes Around. Okay. That's weird. really Okay. Yeah. Huh. Uh, that's the one He he also covers, Personal Jesus by... Uh, Depeche Mode, yeah, uh, and uh, a couple other ones. Desperado. I've never. I don't think I've ever heard the Desperado cover. Wow, uh, that's weird. But uh, yeah, th- I ca- those kind of all bleed together. So I kind of didn't yeah. remember that he had done. But then again, that's Mike Campbell's playing on that, along with John Frusciante from Red Hat Chili Peppers plays on that record. Benmont plays mm-hmm. on that record. Billy Preston, Roger Manning, wow. Jay from Jellyfish. He's yeah. on that record. That is a, again, a murderer's row of uh, players. Fiona Apple, Nick Cave, wow. Joey Wanaker. <laughs> That's crazy. That is a crazy group That's... of people playing together.
2: <laughs> and I love when Tom would talk about it, similar to when he talked about the Wilburys, that, you know, when you're Tom Petty and you're at that level of success and accomplishment, there's not too many people you look up to, but there were some. And Johnny Cash, he looked up to and respected in the same way he looked up to uh, Roy Orbison. I mean, when he described getting Roy Orbison in the band, he was like a little kid. It's like, can you believe it? We got Roy Orbison. <laughs> I mean, to me, you know, my generation, Tom Petty's bigger than Roy Orbison. But to so Tom, can you believe it? So there were certain people he looked up to, and he was really, really proud to get to, to work with Johnny Cash and have him record one of his own songs.
1: And didn't he write the final, the, the last big Roy Orbison single? I think, I think he did. I think it's. Did he? Yeah, I want to say that he or he produced it. Or he was involved. I need, I need to look that up, but because um, remember he had like a a, a random. He's talking the song that
0: came out after he died. I vaguely remember. This. i vaguely remember a single or something after he passed.
1: Was oh, it's it's gonna kill me now that mm-hmm. I can't. You got it. That song was written with Jeff Lynne and Tom Petty. That was Wait, the last. Song? you got it it's off of the album um mystery girl that came out in 89 okay yeah that's a co-write with um petty and uh and jeff lynn and then he also worked with um i worked with diane warren on one of the tracks and then mike campbell produced a lot of that record as well with jeff lynn and t-bone burnett and apparently bono produced one of the songs that's weird that's random but it basically the band for that record was the heartbreakers they their list as the core players on that record so and then i well except for stan lynch <laughs> jim Keltner, keltner's plays drums on that record so okay uh, but that's just another example of like how busy they were again at the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s where they're all they're playing on you know roy orbison's record Right around the time that you know, full moon fever and mm-hmm. the wilberries and all that's happening.
2: I understand it says a lot about who Tom is, that that is the thing he loves more than anything, is to make music. He said to me many times, you know, other people wanna to go to Saint Bart's or get some yacht or, you know, go scuba diving. I wanna when I'm not making my own records, I wanna work on someone else's records or I wanna I wanna play guitar or I you know, that's why he would actually do Mud Crutch, you know. He'd do other musical projects. There's nothing he likes more than writing songs, making music, and playing music. That's where he, his passion has always lived.
1: I do want to get to Echo, because that's an interesting record in the overall scheme of things. I feel like it's almost an outlier in the way that I read in one of the books that he says, you know, he really likes songs that are about three minutes, like 3 to 3.30 and that record is not a, an album where he sticks to the three to three thirty format, and it's kind of nice in that way. In that the songs sort of stretch a little bit, and like the opening track "Room at the Top" is like five minutes, and there are a couple of, of shorter songs, but there's a lot of stuff: um, "Swingin' and Lonesome Sundown" and "Won't Last Long." These are all like four and a half, five minute long songs. And it allows Mike Campbell to stretch a little bit on his guitar playing and, you know, do a little bit more with it. And it allows them to kind of almost be like Jay was saying, like an Americana band in a way that probably they weren't, you know, they were in bits and pieces and Tom would write that way for certain songs. But this, this seemed to put them It's a very bluesy record in some spots and, Going back to it, I mean, it's it's not packed with singles the way that you know the '80s records are, or, or Wildflowers and some of the other records. Was a lot of really strong material, like Free Girl Now and some other tracks. That and then in reading, Free Girl Now was actually released as an MP3, uh, which was really weird to <laughs> to realize that Tom Petty was the, one of the first artists to free release free, uh, free release a a single on the internet uh, before an album came out. I did not know oh. that that had happened. Mm. Yeah. That's it. Yeah,
2: um, but you're right. I mean, I think, as he said, you know, the, how he was dismantling, it was a dark time for the Heartbreakers, and he didn't have his usual focus. So, like you said, some of the songs are much longer than a typical Tom Petty song. He takes a lot of pride, and you get it all done in three minutes, you don't need any more, you know, like a great Beatles single or any great single that you grew up with. So these are longer, like the song Echo, as he said to me, it changes tense. It's got different narratives, you know, it's it's kinda all over the place and it's a long song. It's a it's not a typical Tom Petty song. And then you also get Rhino Skin, which is one of his most dark and funny songs, I think, in the in the same place. You know that and, one rhino skin?
1: Yeah, I'm just going back to I don't have my I don't have specific notes on that.
2: Yeah, he told me uh Rhino skin is dark is dismal and humorous at the same time. He said there yeah. were people that got it because he mentioned
0: elephants' balls. He thought that was offensive. <laughs> yeah, that one uh, on a re-listen, that one really popped out to me. I, I have to say, I was like, "What funny did he just
2: say?" <laughs> yeah, it's a
0: funny song. Yeah. Overall, I mean, the record it, it's it has very dark moments. I mean, I, I you know throughout his career, yes, these can be melancholy here and there, but I mean, this is a record where it it's pretty melancholy from start to finish. So it certainly has a different. I think, overall tone than what we're used to up until, up until this point for a for a Tom Petty record.
1: Well, if you just read the song yeah. titles, I mean, Won't Last yeah. Long and No More, About to Give Out. I mean, it's pretty, there's a lot of darkness just in the titles of the songs.
2: Yeah. The song I Don't Want to Fight is almost all Mike Campbell, Mike wrote the words and the music. Tom said the only part he wrote was, I'm a lover, lover, lover. That was the only thing he brought to that one.
1: And that's unusual, right? Like, usually it's Mike Campbell bringing music,
2: yeah. and then
1: Tom sort of figuring out a, a melody on top of that. Is that right?
2: Right, and, and, and Tom would write all the words. Mike would not write any of the words. And sometimes Tom would take a long time to get it right, like he told me about You Wreck Me, which I think is a, a great songwriting story because it says how much one word means in a song because the song is such a small form. Every word means so much. He said for almost a year it was You Rock Me and it just wasn't right. And he said then he got you wrecked me and the whole thing shifted and he, he discovered
0: oh, That's pretty I mean, that's cool. That's usually
2: Tom Tom solves those lyrical problems, not Mike, but that it shows where Tom must have been at to let Mike pretty much take over a, a whole song. I think it's the only example of that ever.
1: That's interesting. And I know that further down the road there's been Mike approached Tom about doing a solo record and hmm. had like a uh you know a bunch of demos where he sang all the songs and tom was like but you kind of sound like me <laughs> and uh and he was like oh well you know that's just how i sound he's like yeah but people might think that this is like somehow related to the to the band i think they kind of put the kibosh on it you know and really? in, in saying that you know i got no problem with you you know writing and playing with other people but uh, I'm trying to think about when that happened. If that was in the '90s or the 2000s, but uh, mm. nope. yeah, there, there seemed to be like like it seems like those guys have a, a relationship, and I don't. Maybe you can speak on this. That in the same way that like sometimes you know you have a brother that you you love, but you don't really like them right now. Like those guys seem to go through those sorts of things where they're kind of pissed off at each other for whatever reason, but it's never going to end the relationship because they just, they're too intertwined with each other to ever have that happen. They might, you know, go off and whatever, do certain things separately, but they're always going to come back to one another for all the albums. And whether even if it's a solo album by, uh, Tom or what have you, but the, uh, all the projects that Mike Campbell's worked with outside of the Heartbreakers. I mean, it's just, it's a crazy list of people that he's worked with from Fleetwood Mac to Roger McGuinn and John Prine. And he's even worked with like bad religion, (laughs) which is crazy.
2: Uh, Um, Yeah. Well, in my experience, I mean, I've interviewed a lot of people in other bands and there's a lot of contempt in most rock bands for each other. And I didn't see that. I mean, except when he talks about Stan. And even that, he was uncomfortable expressing the extent of their discord. But when it comes to him talking about Benmont or Mike Campbell or even Ron Blair or, or Perone or Thurston, he had nothing but but praise and and truly likes them. And he just said to me many times that he was just kind of amazed at his great fortune to just happen to be in the same town where where Benmont was and where Mike Campbell was. That that was just. Incredible, incredible luck, like the Beatles all being in Liverpool—that it was meant to be. So I, I really felt that, and he, he just seemed to have so much awe for Mike Campbell, and just, and just like a musician, really looking up to a supreme musician, just uh, being amazed that the guy could could really do anything. So he, he had a lot of for Thurston, who so I must say he said that. I was oh yeah. He said, "I think, I think Thurston is maybe my best friend in the world now," and he just loves that guy. And Thurston is such a gentle and peaceful guy, and. Just kinda of steps in and fills in whatever roles need to be filled in for each song and it's a cool role he plays in the band.
1: Yeah, he's kind of the utility infielder of the band. Yeah. Didn't kind of do anything after, and
2: Yeah. Swiss Army knife.
1: Yeah, the Swiss Army knife.
0: What kind of touring did he do in the nineties? Um, I know obviously the full moon fever tour was huge. I'm assuming he toured for in the Great wide Open. But after that I, I, I know I lost track of his touring. Uh, through the decade do you have any high level of that tim
1: um i didn't really look into that specifically i mean obviously he did a tour for into the great wide open that went i think like two years it was like 91 92 that they toured for that record i don't know how much touring he did for wildflowers i'm pretty sure they did some and i know when did they get inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame that was like mid 90s right
2: Mm,
0: I don't think so. I think it was more more recent than that.
1: Because that was one of the things that, or, or maybe it wasn't, because it was, had Stan Lynch. 2002. Okay. So Stan Lynch was already out of the band by that point. But wasn't yeah. there a story like that he came back to play one song at the Hall of Fame and there was like a tension and like they kind of were supposed to meet, like they left. The hol- something where they were left something and Stan Lynch was like well you guys didn't ask me to go with you and they were like well you didn't ask to go with us it was like a very like high school like yeah. well you guys didn't say anything and you guys didn't say anything and it just like sort of put the icing on the sort of cake between the two of them that yeah they clearly should not work together obviously anymore because there was just this underlying you know issue with them but um trying to remember there was also this story where like they i don't know if it was the rock and hall of fame where they played a gig and like tom was in the tour bus and had a window open and stan lynch was standing outside talking to some other musicians and was like bad-mouthing tom like the heartbreakers
0: uh he talks about that in the movie that he was uh like while they were doing into the great wide open that album man tour he was openly like Okay. auditioning for other bands and telling folks that the heartbreakers weren't his 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 top area of focus right now or something along those lines
1: right that's and, it uh, And okay. I think
0: tom petty had overheard him having some of those conversations just like what what, what? <laughs> so oh, yeah that's what i was saying I, there was a thread there of I think him just trying to get fired basically like <laughs> wanting to somebody to tell him that it was okay to move on well speaking
1: of touring they just announced a huge tour for 2017 which it's the 40th anniversary i believe of the band in well actually the first album came out in 76 so i don't know if you consider that the 40th anniversary but i don't know i I do the math on that but uh there's a huge tour and i know it's huge because they're playing three different cities in ohio and anytime a band Uh. plays all three major cities columbus (laughs) cincinnati and cleveland that's a big tour He's usually only uh, one of those gets hit if any of them bother to get hit. Uh, but, you know. Which one gets, is
2: Cincinnati the one that gets it? Or maybe no, maybe all, Cleveland. Uh, rock
1: Hall? We all got them. I'm going to go see them. People in Cincinnati are going to go see him, and, and Cleveland. I, that's, what that's what's so shocking is that. Uh, I mean, if they chose only one. Which, oh, they chose which, one uh, usually it's Cleveland because the rock Roll uh, Hall of Fame is there and there's a lot of venues. Um, rock, and
0: just classic rock radio is just it's still a behemoth in Cleveland, where yeah. in Cincinnati Columbus uh, is not quite as big, but
1: Yeah. Yeah. Columbus will get a lot of the more popular, like, alternative current bands. Um because it has an independent radio station and because it has the largest college campus, I think, on on the planet, <laughs> with Ohio State University. So uh that's that tends to the way the way it goes, is that the Legacy acts go to Cleveland and the alternative acts go to Columbus. But, you know, he's getting up in age, I think he'll be 67 next year. And there's been some talk of whether or not that'll be the last like major, you know, where they hit you know, 100 dates in a year sort of thing or 50 dates in a year. Because I, I can't remember the last time they did that huge of a tour playing. I mean, they're going to be playing the Shot and Scene Center, which is a 20,000 seat venue here in Columbus so to be doing that every night that's a pretty big operation you know to, that much equipment and I'm sure that's oh, yeah. a, a huge endeavor I um, mean for
2: his album Hypnotic Eye they did a major tour they played the, the forum here in Los Angeles which is enormous
0: uh, so the 90s it looks like they did the Into the Great Wide Open tour from 91 to 92 mm-hmm. uh, they did Dogs with Wings 1995 um, yeah, yeah. They did – after that, they did the Fillmore House Band in 1997.
1: Oh, that's right. Didn't they play like 20 nights in a row or something like that
0: at the Fillmore? Yeah. Yes, it looks like it. And they have a set list here of of everything. And the last tour was the Echo Tour in 99 uh, for the 90s. Okay. If you go to TomPetty.Rocks.com, they have a year by – or decade by decade tour – archive which is pretty awesome
1: so it's hard to wrap it up like this but i i I think we've gone over an hour now so it's it's probably a good spot for us to start getting into the wrap-up phase i mentioned at the beginning like with van halen and metallica we were trying to assess whether or not they even survived the 90s and i said with with petty you know there's not as much of an output in terms of just sheer material in the 80s versus the 90s in the 80s he put out um four albums with the Heartbreakers. He put out a solo album, and then he also contributed to the Wilburys album. It's got four albums, three with uh, the Heartbreakers, one of which is the soundtrack, which is kind of considered, I guess, kind of a tossed-off record. Um, And then the one solo record. It's also the second Wilburys album came out in 90, but I don't think that did as well as the first Wilburys record. And this is, you know, this doesn't... This doesn't go on the permanent record, but in terms of decades, if you were going to pick a Tom Petty decade, would you? Would your preference be with the '80s or with the '90s output? Um, Paul, I'll start with you.
2: It's hard to say because there's so much great stuff in every decade, really, with him, which is unusual. I mean, with with so many people, it's so obvious which decade you choose. But you know, I, I'm I'm more drawn to the stuff from the '90s. You know, I found the uh, from, from Full Moon Fever on, as I said, it he reached a different place with his songwriting and. And I love southern accents in the early classics, but I really think he got to a whole new place where it was freer and more liberated and more fun. The music, and still is great, still as compelling with great hooks and great rock singles, and still a phenomenal band. Obviously, so the records always sounded great. So I would go. In. I like the
1: '90s. Cool, excellent. Fits in with the format of the show perfectly. <laughs>
0: oh, good. <laughs> well done, uh, Jay. Where where do you, where would you go with this uh, '80s yeah, or '90s? Yeah, so- Here's the host of the '90s rock show that's gonna blow it up. Um, I, I just for sentimental reasons, I think the '80s like there's just a connection there. Uh, it just brings back, you know, it, you know, music is one of those triggers to 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 bring back memories that uh, you can't otherwise. So that that '80s material just does that for me. Mm-hmm. I think the thing though that is so great about the '90s materials, I think it's deeper. I think you can listen to it more. You know, you could. You could put this on repeat and every listen get more depth out of it than I think some of the 80s stuff or most of the 80s stuff. Um, So I definitely, you know, I don't think it's a, the quality went down at all. It's just a personal thing for me.
1: Right. I'll say this. I think in terms of if you're just going for sheer singles, I think the 80s have a, just a massive amount of great singles. But I feel like the album tracks in the 90s. Is Where it's at I feel like those are the stronger Portions of the albums Not that the 80s albums didn't have Good album tracks but I feel like They're a little bit lesser than The the 90s album tracks Whereas you know you take Wildflowers and In the Great Wide Open I just feel like there's so much Good material on those records That um, just Some of the 80s stuff just doesn't Stand up when you get deeper into the records You know tracks 8, 9 and 10 that kind of thing so, and this is dismissing the '70s, which has three great records as well. <laughs> Probably, you know, with in terms of singles, "Damn the Torpedoes" is
0: possibly the most yeah, single heavy. Honestly, record. I, I may take the '70s. <laughs> that that might be the the, the one that was uh, you know the, the most into- nostalgic for me.
2: I think that's the remarkable thing about him that in every decade he's done really great work, and it's clearly not that way with every band. Some bands are so oh. much about one decade or just a. a short span of years. But I thought even his last album, Hypnotic Eye, the guy seems to me as committed and inspired as ever. Like a song like Fault Lines. I mean, to me, that's just ingenious songwriting. Or uh, You Get Me High, which is just a, a great single. So, I mean, to me, that's a remarkable thing about the guy that he started off great and he just got greater and, and never let go of it. He always did quality work in every decade.
1: And like you've mentioned, he's actually brought back his original band with Mudcrutch Crutch. And, uh yeah. They've made some that. cool records that I don't think anybody was expecting that to happen. Well, I remember when it when it I mean, was like came out and I was like, What is this?
2: You yeah, know. right. Well, yeah, on brought- they did a, a Troubadour here in LA, which is a small intimate venue pretty much, and to see Tom Petty with Mud it just shows this guy really loves music. <laughs> it's very unusual for someone that, well, to do that, to bring back their, their first band while he's doing solo work, while he's doing the Heartbreakers it just shows that there's nothing he cares about more and and he had new songs you know to bring to Mike Crutch too so uh you know it's it's remarkable it's very unusual
0: well uh you know he the the Ron Blair story alone i mean he yeah. when they had to go uh, after Holly passed they had to find another bass player they went back to Ron who hadn't played what i can tell hadn't played music in 20 years
2: exactly um, ron bought a bikini store on Ventura Boulevard in LA
0: right. <laughs> and he <laughs> And he's a phenomenal bass player. I mean, watching some of the footage of the, especially the the early band stuff. I mean, he's just incredible. And I, I don't I don't know the full story on him, but uh, it, it sounded like he left the band and never played again until Tom Petty called again, and now he's back in the band again. Just yeah, like yeah, it's
2: very in, very unusual. You just walk <laughs> away, from the band, kind of like Bill Wyman did with the Stones. I've had enough. I'm in one of the yeah. top bands of the world. And I've had enough. I don't want to be on the you know the, the circus anymore. Uh, but he was so much a part of the band. And it shows how loyal Tom is too that he would go back to him. And Ron Blair, after just giving up music completely, could be completely back into it so so fully like he is. That's yeah, uh, It shows. I mean, Tom could have picked anyone. But also getting Steve Perone I think, was really interesting because he's a he's really a remarkable drummer and, and a sweet man. And it showed that Tom he needed people in the band that he can he can get along with and that's
1: that's for own all right i need to thank a couple of people first of all i need to thank scott witt and steven over at our patreon page they left us some comments on their uh, appreciation of tom petty and uh we want to acknowledge them and then we want to remind people they can go to patreon.com forward slash dig me out to join us at patreon and of course we need to thank paul for joining us. Everybody needs to go check out the book, first of all, that we've been referencing, which is Conversations with Tom Petty. You can pick this up um, just about anywhere that they sell books, pretty much. I also want to direct people to americansongwriter.com where you can read articles by joining the website, and then you can also uh, subscribe to the actual physical magazine. I think the most recent... interview that you had up was a conversation with John Legend is that right
2: yeah that's right okay In our next issue I actually have a cover story on Leonard Cohen I did an interview with him right at the very end and also Paul Simon and Bob Weir of the Grateful Dead all in the next issue
1: wow wow that is a lot of people that is (laughs) a a a a lot of firepower (laughs) (laughs) I <laughs> <laughs> Want remember, remember, wanted to remind people of the books Songwriters on Songwriting and More Songwriters on Songwriting which are also available where's the best place for people to go pick those up uh, do you prefer like Amazon or do you like them to go to do you have a personal website or is it all through AmericanSongwriter.com uh, it's, it's through them
2: and Amazon's the best place to, to get it, they're always there that's the easiest place
1: excellent Paul, thanks for joining us. This was awesome conversation about Tom, and really appreciate you contributing.
2: Well, thanks for having me. It's, a, it's, so, it's such a joy to get to talk about Tom with people that love him and know him so well. So thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: And I want to remind everybody who's listening, please head on over to iTunes. Please consider leaving us some positive feedback on this episode. Helps yeah. with the podcast in terms of our ranking. And that's it. We are done with all of our regular episodes for 2016. Next week, we'll be back with our final episode for the year, wrapping up the sixth season of Dig Me Out. So we'll be back next week with one more episode for 2016 of Dig Me Out.
0: Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash out.